Ladies, gentlemen, and our non-binary listeners, this podcast, clearly one of the most unusual ever recorded, contains scenes which under no circumstance should be listened to by anyone with a predisposition to demonic enthrallment. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person, or the parent of a child who is also a life-size demonic doll, that you and the possessed child doll turn this program off immediately. And now, we commence our frightful broadcast. Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host, for today's exciting tale of terror. Blood feast, or some food for thoughts. <laughs> Greetings, friends. And welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. My name is John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined, as always, by my dear friend and comrade, Ash. Ash, how are you? Doing pretty good, <laughs> all things considered. You know, in in times like this, I think doing pretty good is, is you know, that's the best that we can all ho- hope for, right? That's, that's what we, we are. We are doing well, if that's what we say. Grading, grading on what I'm going to call the uh, lifetime lived as a millennial scale, uh, it's pretty all right today. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. In the, in the, there's just, you know, all the great horrors of our contemporary age that we're living through, so things could be worse. Um, right? It's, it's just everything bad that has been happening for the last 32 years, and uh, I haven't heard of anything new that's bad that's happened today, so it's okay. <laughs> so that's that's pretty good. I am very excited. I'm very excited because we are today talking about... Look, I know both me and you have a kind of suspicion of the canon, right? It's often a way of kind of creating a hierarchy of film uh, and usually excluding huge amounts of people. But I I am going to I am gonna say that we are talking about maybe one of the canonical horror vanguard films. <laughs> uh, a classic from the 1960s made by the godfather of gore Herschel <laughs> Gordon Lewis yes this episode is on blood feast yeah once um once criterion starts responding to my emails i'm sure this will be the first inclusion in the criterion horror vanguard box set uh like don't don't quote me on this but is it this already in the criterion collection is it? I think it. I think it might be. My uh, God, uh, it uh, is. It there, is. Yeah, there we go. There we go. I just had to double check that. Uh, shout out to our friends at Criterion, and if you do ever want, <laughs> if you do ever want uh, e- uh, the HV curated list of horror films, just get in touch. You know where we are. Sure, that email's coming any day now. Any day now. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, as you may have heard at the start of the show, there is this is perhaps one of the more unusual episodes that we've recorded, and so with fear and trepidation, I turn to my friend, my comrade Ash, and ask him to tell us all what is Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast all about. 
It is not right that everyone listen to the podcast which follows. Only a few will be able to savor this acrid fruit with impunity. Consequently, shrinking soul, turn on your heels and go back before penetrating further into such uncharted and perilous discourse. In the mid-1800s, with sickness weighing on his soul, Comte de Lautremont wrote, When one wants to be famous, one has to dive gracefully into the rivers of blood of cannon-blasted bodies. What de Lautremont wrote about fame applies even more so to our blood-soaked condition under the failing edifices of capitalism. Our economic system is sustained solely through an incalculable level of bloodshed. Karl Marx was closer to Herschel Gordon Lewis than he could have ever predicted when he wrote, Capitalism comes dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt. Splatter is the cinematic language of the ground up and eviscerated under capitalism. Through its gore and excessive violence, we can see the condition of our lives literalized. The violence we see on screen is both an object of cathexis, of our own pain, and that pain made manifest. Let us explore these twin agonies and not shy away from the extremity of violence that would seek to contain us. As Mark Stevens so eloquently wrote in Splatter Capital, No strangulation without exhilaration, no dungeon without paradise, no horror without glory. Join us as we discuss Herschel Gordon Lewis's 1963 classic, Blood Feast. Oh, so good. I am so excited. I'm so excited for this. Um, where do you want to start? How do you how do you want to approach something that even now I think people watching it would find it, I don't know, distasteful, resistant to kind of easy cons- consumption, hyper violent, a kind of sleazy bit of cinema. Where do you want to Where do you want to start? Um, I think actually right there is where I want to start. I want I want to start with like so this is this is splatter at its finest. This is Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, you know, like the the father of splatter film or the grandfather. <clears throat> this is everything that makes splatter unique and and kind of distinct as a mode within horror itself. Mm. And and as you kind of alluded to, the one one of those factors that gets discussed less often is the fact that it's not easy to digest. It's not easy to turn splatter into a product, right? It's not easy to kind of regurgitate and redigest splatter in the way that capitalism would do to literally everything else. It has trouble yeah. with splatter. Uh, and that's because it has trouble with the other thing that it's most close, that splatter is most closely linked to, which is pornography, right? Herschel Gordon-Lewis, and quite a lot of the other splatter filmmakers of the 60s and 70s got their start doing nudie movies uh, and then ended up having to make extremely low budget but very um, commercial films like this, right? They They were marketed to the drive-in audience. They cost literally nothing to make. And they would make hundreds of thousands of dollars because you could put them on like midnight screenings. There'd be a big double feature of like uh, Blood Feast and you know another one, and it, you would just rake in the money from them. So they they are both kind of resistant to that mode of analysis, but they are also like a great product. But that's because they had to be a great product. They weren't trying to make like 
high art here. But I think because of that, it because of everything that makes it distinctive, I do actually think this is a work of art. I completely agree. And yeah, like Herschel Gordon Lewis, like so many of those like mid to late sixties splatter auteurs, you know, like like as as pornography became uh, a distinct and separate industry and Hollywood became more okay with displays of sexuality and nudity. Like the kinds of movies that Herschel Gordon Lewis used to make were now part of more of a mainstream cinema. And so he got, you know, he had to relocate, he had to change shop. But I think like the most interesting thing that we see is that a lot of the filmic technique of splatter is the filmic technique of pornography, mm. <clears throat> right? The, the hyper-focus on gore and the way that gore is treated inside of splatter is the exact same way that the act of sex is treated within pornography. It's this hyper-focus, it's, it's these long shots, it's this kind of build and release of tension that follows these rhythmic patterns. And even a lot of the shots, like when uh, Fuad Ramsey is, is ripping out the girl's tongue, that's a, it's a heavily, heavily sexual scene. And not just in like a metaphoric way, like, oh, uh, the knife... The knife as a phallic representation, like not that kind of like overwrought academic sexuality, but like there's like a raw sexuality of Fuab, like stuffing his fingers in this girl's mouth. And the way that it's framed is a very pornographic lens. Mm -hmm. And I think that this this kind of reshapes a little bit of what we're looking at when we start talking about splatter. Yeah. So we're talking so we're talking about something that's like incredibly low budget. We're talking about something which is. Uh, if I'm being charitable, is on a technical level, uh, kind of functional. Um, we're talking about something hard. Disagree. Has... <laughs> <laughs> I said what I said, <laughs> uh, but 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 only because that functionality is entirely subservient to what you were talking about, right? That aesthetic and filmic language of like tension and release. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I think, like, as far as, like, <clears throat> the cinematography of Herschel Gordon-Lewis goes, I think he's, like, incredibly talented, right? Because what we're, I mean, like, he shot this film on a budget of $24,000, which is, I mean, like, you know, you're right, that's virtually nothing when we're talking about filming a movie. And I think a lot of a lot of the things in Herschel Gordon-Lewis's films that come off as kind of awkward or silly or weird come from the fact that, like, uh, he's he's a pornographer who's used to not w making and working with a lot of money, and so he doesn't have all of the flair and nicety that a multi-million-dollar yeah. Hollywood project would have. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, maybe I'm being a little bit mean. Maybe that was a little <laughs> bit mean. No one insults Herschel Gordon Lewis in my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we we have our opening murder scene. Um. And there's a lot. I think there's the interesting thing is there's a, there's actually a lot to talk about in a film which is just barely over an hour long. Um, and I, where where do you want to kind of let's get into like some, let's get into the the meat of the discourse. Let's kind of <laughs> get our hands dripping with the gore of film analysis. Where do you want to where do you want to begin? Well, let's 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 reach right into the mouth of this discourse and pull out its tongue. Let's talk about police, a very timely topic. <laughs> I I love how this film uh, depicts the police because the police in this film are like comically terrible at their jobs. Not not even in the way where like horror movie cops are kind of always bad. 
and, and useless and unable to, to stop anything. But in this one, they're just like, they're, they're laughably incapable of doing anything useful. Of doing literally, it's like, hey, chief, we've had these five super grisly murders of young women. They have nothing in common except for an interest in ancient Egypt. Well, I guess we have literally no leads and no idea what to do next. It's, it certainly has nothing Scene. to do with this book club that they're all part of. Like that, that is not that is not a factor here. Yeah, um, this film clearly shows that the the kind of counterline to any sort of abolitionist idea of like, well, what are you gonna, well, what are you gonna do if the police aren't there and there's a murderer? It's like, well, there are murderers here, and the police are incapable of doing anything. Right, like literally, literally, the morning that we're recording this. Uh, an independent group of citizens in Milwaukee are are investigating and 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 working to dismantle a sex trafficking ring in the city because the police won't do anything about it. Yeah, like un- unconfirmed Twitter Twitter reports are all I've seen at the time of this recording, so I don't know which way this had one way or another. But like, the, the police get in the way of things. <laughs> yeah, and they are just inept. They're just completely inept. Um, of course, there is one. There is one scene in particular that I think we should talk about, right? Which is the scene in the car. That scene will lead really well into our uh, like discussion of gender and this movie's treatment of gender politics in a bit. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that that is like one of the best um, depictions of like just why police are awful. So a, the 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 cop's name is Pete, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and he uh, is is uh, courting, going out. He's 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 seeing this um, high society uh, daughter Suzette, uh, and they they go for a drive together, as one did in the sixties, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, this movie has a lot of people like stopping their car at Makeout Peak and just hanging. Yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> Uh, just hanging out at make make out point where where sixty years ago tonight all of those teenagers were murdered, <laughs> but let, it'll be fine. Um, and so this is in the middle of a kind of murder spree, and this cop decides he's going to take the night out, a night off, and he's going to go out with his girl. Um, and it's like this is the middle of the night, and already at this point in the film there have been multiple like announcements on the radio telling all young women to stay inside. Um, and watching that scene, I was just like, uh, you're in danger here, girl. And it's not because of any murderer that might be on the loose. It's because you're, you're driving around late at night with a cop. (laughs) And like, like, so it's really like the, the scene is really grim given our current political climate and all the things that we're, we're much more aware of now, but what makes this scene so incredibly like grotesque and graphic for watching it in june of 2020 is that there there is a line where they're they're kind of like um the couple is like they're they're having a little playful banter back and forth and and the cop literally turns to suzette and 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 he says you know you you might be in more danger because of me than that serial killer and he's meaning it as kind of like a flirtatious thing but but it's also completely factually accurate. Forty percent of the Suzettes in that car need to get out and run away immediately. <laughs> yep. Uh, let us let us be 
kind of clear about our position here. Uh, 13-12. Uh, ACAB, always. Uh, we're always being proven right about this. And this includes um, RoboCop. This All includes no RoboCop. <laughs> no copaganda. Uh, so not only not only are the police in this film like blazingly incompetent at even like the most basic functions of what the police's job is supposed to be but also like they're deeply creepy and threatening which is a very toxic and dangerous combination oh yeah and I think this speaks to like the, like this this is a criticism of police and horror that I know we've talked about a couple of times on the show now but that when you're watching a horror movie that has police in it, if you're part of society um, or like, you know, how your privileges intersect with part of society that benefits from what police do, right? Whether that's by race or economic position, like part of the horror is that you're witnessing how that system actually functions and how inept it is. And and for everybody else, you know, <laughs> um, you are you're witnessing literally how that system functions, right? It's just a comic reminder of how it goes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. That scene in the car where he's trying to flirt by telling her that he's a predator and a, and a threat, it's probably worth kind of serving as a lead into talking about the gender politics of this film as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And because we, we, I mean, like we were talking a little bit earlier how we get a couple of scenes where it's like, uh, like young couples at, at make out point. Um, and our first, our first set were uh, Tony and Marcy, and they were they're, uh, Marcy's killed by Fuad Ramsey's. Tony is injured and knocked out. Um, but before that happens, right? They're they're fooling around in the car. They're, it's it's shot the very same way that it's shot with um, uh, Detective Thornton and Suzette. Yeah. Um, but like this, the scene kind of culminates with um, Marcy relenting to Tony's advances, and then Tony saying something to the effect of "Prove you love me." Uh. And it's like that the "Prove you love me" line contrasted with the um, detective Pete saying that, um, like, "Oh, I might be more dangerous than that serial killer." Like, those two contrasting lines are, like, this really scathing condemnation of patriarchal masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think this connects to a kind of a bigger issue, right? These are, those are two kind of moments which tie into a broader thesis in this film, which is about the role of violence, specifically violence that's directed against women. Um... And I think this is maybe the bigger conversation that we need to kind of dig into. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think you're completely right. I think what this film is trying to do with a discourse on violence is is incredibly nuanced and complicated, right? Because we've been discussing the, the kind of sexual predation of the detective and Tony, but we've, we've been glossing over the star of the show, uh, the uh, grotesque slasher killer and uh, brilliant home cook, Fuad Ramses. <laughs> uh, coming soon, the Fuad Ramses recipe book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have your friends over for dinner, wink. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, we have. And like I say, I think it's important to point out that those kind of two moments of gross paternalistic misogyny are not 
distinct from the larger themes of violence here and this is a kind of classic critique of the slasher right that it has a kind of um it's a kind of basic exercise in misogyny but this is something that carol clover has written about something that mark stephen has written about both of whom we've we've talked about on this show um that that's a really simplistic way of looking at what these films are doing and the kind of cultural and psychological work that these texts are doing as well um and i know you you kind of had a point that was drawing off some of um mark stevens work and carol clover's work that you wanted to make about this film uh yeah yeah let me let me open this by reading a uh quote that carol clover um wrote this is carol clover discussing the um rather infamous rape revenge movie i spit on your grave carol clover writes That it is with a member of the gender underclass, a woman, representing the economic overclass, the urban rich, and a member of the gender overclass, males, representing the economic underclass, the rural poor. A feminist politics of rape has been deployed in the service of class and racial guilt. Raped and battered, the haves can rise to annihilate the have-nots all in the name of feminism. And so in this in this line, Carol Clover is is explicating on the text if I spit on your grave and digging into its com- how complex the text is. And I think that's what we need to do here with Blood Feast, because <laughs> it would be really tempting because the the kind of surface level uh, reading of I spit on your grave is that this woman gets revenge against her attackers. But Carol Clover isn't satisfied with that. Carol Clover goes one layer deeper right to see how gender and class intersect and, and make that narrative much more complicated you know yeah. and, and you can go even deeper than that and discuss um ability in uh i spit on your grave but this isn't an i spit on your grave episode so i think that we can do something really uh interesting with carol clover's analysis of i spit on your grave and this movie by inverting it right this this movie features fuad ramses a member of a uh gendered overclass but an economic underclass right he works he works in the service industry yeah he he works in hospitality he's yeah he's heavily coded as being uh also an immigrant right um but he's also a man right he's part of that gendered overclass in addition to these like quote-unquote underclasses and then when we look at his victims right they're all they're all women they're all members of a gendered underclass but they're also high society uh rich people They're, they're members of this economic overclass Right. And they're also white. They're members of a racial, quote unquote, overclass. And you've got this kind of inversion of how Carol Clover was reading I Spit on Your Grave going on inside of the text of Blood Feast. Yeah, which actually, if you if you follow that through, it's it's the have nots rising up to annihilate the haves in this case. Yes, yes, and that's and that's Mark Mark Stevens' point, um, and I think like you you can just just like I was saying, we can go uh, one layer deeper with um, I spent on your grave. We can go one layer deeper deeper with this. Like Fuad Ramses has um, so some kind of uh, mobility difficulties, right? Like he's often seen uh, dragging a limp leg behind him. Although the movie never, or at least like I don't think it ever gets into why that is. No, I don't think so. And so you've got so again. Like, oh go on go on no no sorry i was just trying to set you up so again carry on (laughs) (laughs) no i was just gonna say i mean so we have we have this interesting situation where the the easy surface level read of this is is that you know we tie fuad ramses in with the uh detective and tony and we read this kind of 
uh, kind of like striated network of sexual uh, predation and oppression, right? Oppression based on gender. Um, but we can do what Carol Clover was doing with "I Spit on Your Grave" and and make this multidimensional, right? And have and have a more complicated conversation that addresses the uh, patriarchal violence that's conducted by indeed Fuad and these other people, but also recognize that there are other elements going on here, right? Otherwise, we will um, fall into a trap that I think a lot of a lot of analysis falls into a trap of not respecting this kind of intersectionality, not respecting that it's multidimensional, right? Mm. And so you get like, um, like the, the classic example is 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 the uh, more women drone pilots tweet, right? Yeah, yeah. And this this is a way out of that trap. It's it's looking at the kind of multidimensionality of things. Yeah, but I I'm sort of interested. You know, where does that leave us? Like I'm, I, 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 I get what you mean when we're talking about a kind of multi-dimensional appreciation of the, the kind of uh, interlocking mechanisms by which all of us are determined within capitalism. Uh, taking an intersectional uh, analysis to the issue of violence, but what, what does that kind of, how does that play out then in the context of trying to understand Blood Feast? What I would say to that is it leaves us with a lot of questions about this text and about how the violence in this text plays out, right? We have these contrasting panoplies of male violence playing out inside of the text of Blood Feast, right? And we have them playing out through a pornographic lens, which adds like a, a, an extra, like a, a shifting dimension on a different axis that we can play around with. But what now, this... Oh, go on. Well, I wanted to add one more. I wanted to add one more kind of lens by which we have to understand the violence in this film. And it's one that um, Mark Stephen doesn't talk about, and I don't actually think very many people talk about, which is the fact that Farwood uh, Ramses is doing this on religious grounds. And his, like the, the interesting thing about any kind of religious system of belief is it makes an ethical demand right it makes an ethical demand of you so um does uh forward ramses believe that he's doing anything wrong per se the answer provided by the text is probably no so there's like the the ethics of the violence uh is complicated even further precisely because like you've got suddenly a You've got like a the theological thing happening in here as well, right? Because it, it's it's all about um, a ritual in, in the to the name of uh, Ishtar, an ancient Egyptian uh, goddess. So that's something that I think we have to add into the conversation too. Yeah, no, I I think you're completely right about that, and I think within the text of the film, you know, we we know that Fuad Ramses has powers. Right, that he's not just a, a mortal man, right? He hypnotizes uh, Dorothy Fremont, Suzette's mother, at the onset of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or at least, or at least, psychically compels her, right? And whether whether that power comes from his faith, his religion, his his belief system being correct, or it's something independent of that, um, never explained, never, never the concern of the film. But this is kind of like a, a Herschel Gordon Lewis trademark, especially when he moves from kind of like exploitation and pornography into splatter and horror is that Herschel Gordon Lewis is very okay with 
unanswered questions about the occult and unanswered questions about magic and faith. You know, yeah, we, we, absolutely. we say this in uh, The Wizard of Gore is a great example of this. You know, like that, that movie is constantly challenging you with uh, the boundaries of reality. And I think that this is kind of like something Herschel's interested in. I think that's that's one of the things about this film which I think is the most interesting. You know, I posed this question to you before we started um, recording, which is, um, do you think the ritual would have worked if it hadn't been interrupted? The logic of the film and the logic of the film's narrative had played out. Would the ritual have worked? Uh, and I think whatever answer you come down on gives some really interesting insights into how we think about this intersection of violence and religion because i think there is you're, you're completely right there isn't a there isn't a kind of clear-cut answer here so you have to be left open to the possibility uh you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to believe it. it's not like about conversion or even believing that it's true but you have to be open to the possibility of a distinctly kind of non in this really material physical splattery gory film there is an there is an element to this which is like non-material yeah yeah i i completely agree i mean like at the, at the very least this this movie is posing us with a question that we fundamentally can never achieve the information required to answer you know whether or not fuad ramses is powered by some kind of divine magic emanating from his faith or if, I don't know, he's like an X-Men or something, and that's what's giving him his powers to, to hypnotize people. But at the very least, you know, we have this kind of, uh, we have, we have like, uh, uh, this is weird to say in the context of Herschel Gordon-Lewis, but I think it's totally appropriate. We have an encounter with the Numinous here. Yeah, this is and, exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, contemporary religious scholars, please turn to Herschel Gordon-Lewis instead of what you, whatever you were looking at beforehand. <laughs> Yeah, uh, if you if you want to do any kind of serious theology in the modern day, you've got to be talking about Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, Wizard of Gore, Blood Feast, all those great uh, arcane texts. <laughs> these are these are the uh, holy texts that I adhere to, the the canon that is Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, but uh, to to go back to the gendered political discourse and to kind of answer your question, um. I think that what, what what the point of this is and what it comes down to is respecting the fact that discourses need to be intersectional, right? We can't reduce to any one discourse or that's going to hamper our abilities and ruin our conclusions, right? If we if we go reducing everything down to class, that, that leads us into some really terrible corners and, and inevitably leads to racism. If we reduce everything down to... Uh, just just a very surface level gender interpretation that leads to this kind of liberal feminism where everything in the system is okay as long as like um there, there's a call for more uh female cops that i've seen going around and it's like that that, that won't solve the problems that we're facing more today. female slasher killers right see it's, it's that same energy right and that's because like you know th those kinds of attitudes don't have intersectionality behind them those kinds of attitudes aren't appreciating how complex and nuanced these conversations are and we need to expand that thought, right? We need to we need to think about all these things in concert with each other. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I completely agree with that, and I and I do think that that includes thinking about the fact, like the 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 film kind of opens with a shot of a book of weird and ancient uh, religious rituals, and 
there's a lot of talk about religion and there's a kind of long-standing tradition in horror to go well you know even if we even if we know that it's just violent it's just it's just bodies that are being broken apart we know that there is something there's the possibility of something there is the the numinous residue that's left uh left over when you kind of dig into this kind of stuff yeah i I completely and totally agree so something something that i wanted to talk about in regard to this films is kind of like this kind of carnist politics of consumption you know because what we're seeing in uh blood feast is what we will go on to see in texas chainsaw massacre I suppose we. I, I'm just going to use this as an interjection to remind everybody to read Mark Stevens' book, Splatter Capital. <laughs> uh, and that if you join the uh, Horror Vanguard Patreon, you'll get to you get access to the book club episodes where we discuss that very book. Um, no, but like what I what I find to be really interesting is that Blood Feast in 1963 is doing what Texas Chainsaw Massacre is going to be doing in 1974. Um, but this is also what kind of comes out up in Sinclair's classic text, The Jungle. This is what Marx was talking about when he's talking about, like, you know, like uh, uh, human bone melting down into visceral gore. You know, it's this this idea that consumption and labor and flesh and dying are all inextricably linked together, right? You know, we have those classic shots in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where where, where people are literally being butchered like cattle. And yeah. then we have those exact same things going on here in um blood feast right so there's there's this through line that's that's kind of begging a discussion of our uh, gustatory politics and not even that but of our philosophy more broadly quick very quick digression um there is a great documentary called the examined life which is like conversations with eight different philosophers and my favorite one is with cornell west in the back of a cab in new york and what he talks about is he talks about philosophy as a preparation for death. Uh, and not in any kind of abstract sense, but in a visceral sense. He, he says that Heidegger talks a lot about, about death, but that's too abstract. You need to talk about bodies, bodies which decompose, because that's what we are. So this is not just about a kind of consumptive politics, but it's about a kind of existential and philosophical condition, right? You know, we are born in the world in in kind of and we exist as often very physically contingent beings we are fragile we're easily damaged in in a myriad of different ways so this isn't just about kind of a political situation but i think i totally agree that it is but i want to kind of broaden that out that this is about the fundamental existential problem of living under consumptive capitalism and how do you live authentically in that kind of philosophically minded way of, you know, to use a kind of the existentialist term of like being towards death, when at the same time we exist within a system that seeks to kind of accelerate and intensify that process on an almost molecular level? I didn't I think-, think I would be talking about Cornell West and Herschel Gordon Lewis in the same sentence. <laughs> But that's why I love doing the show with you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think that's I think that's one of the best things about Splatter and specifically the work of Herschel Gordon Lewis. Like, uh, because of I, I think like honestly, like hegemonic societal forces, we treat Splatter cinema 
as lowbrow. And if things are coded as lowbrow, they're not worth any kind of critical examination, right? And that that is that's a trap, to be honest. That's a trap to ignore our own culture because what is lowbrow is also working class. Those two things are the same. You know, to call something lowbrow is to call something working class. Lowbrow art is made by working class artists. And like, you know, you know, like, is Herschel Gordon Lewis working class is a complicated question, you know, because he's a famous filmmaker. <laughs> but like, nevertheless, like splatter is a lowbrow art. It is an art intended for consumption by a working class populace. Right. And like, it's not surprising to me that we're that we're finding all these like deep philosophical and theoretical connections and frameworks and ideas going on inside of Herschel Gordon Lewis's work. Yeah, I mean, like this. Uh, I find the final the dinner party scene really interesting from precisely that point of view. And if you kind of take the existential point, Suzette, uh, when she's in the kitchen with in the kitchen with Ford Ramsey's coming soon to the Food Network, <laughs> um, I would I would watch that show. Um, when she's in the kitchen with him, doesn't kind of seem to get that she's about to die. Um, because she just goes, "Oh, this old this old sweet old man is being a little bit goofy," where he's like basically rubbing her with barbecue sauce and preparing her. <laughs> Please, yes. it'll make an old man very happy. Lie down on this chopping block I've just prepared. Right, close your eyes. Uh, recant <laughs> this incident. Uh, yeah, like like. Uh, and oh. like, <laughs> so like from an from this sort of philosophical kind of problem of like, one of the what the the reason I really like that Cornell West clip is that he says that the purpose of philosophy is to prepare you to be able to look at yourself and the world you inhabit with kind of honesty and to accept your own finitude as a human being. And that that isn't an academic or abstract thing. It's something that anybody can do, but it's incredibly difficult and it takes courage. It takes honesty. Um, and like the one thing about all of these like good middle-class people at the party is that they have no kind of genuine conception of the life that they're living. And so like Suzette kind of goes, Oh, okay, I'm gonna lie down next to this big tray of 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 uh onions and olive oil. Um, <laughs> but it's because like existentially, you know, like there is no examination of the life that's going on here. I don't know if you think I'm just being a bit pretentious here, but that's what I was thinking about watching this film. No. Watching that scene. It, yeah. If anything, it's not pretentious enough. <laughs> This is we are we are discussing uh, master uh, auteur uh, cinematic genius Herschel Gordon Lewis. I mean, there 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 is no level of uh, I guess uh, philosophical praise and and discussion that we could give this text that would be worthy of the discourse. So, what do you think about this this idea of the kind of cons consumption, particularly this dinner party scene? So, so I think there's there's so much to talk about here, right? We can um we can kind of like revisit what we were talking about with Mexi in our episode on Raw, you know. We we could talk about the kind of like uh, a left approach to the politics of our consumption of animals, right? We could talk about how literally working class bodies are being thrown and ground to pieces to make our food supply, 
right? We, we could talk about uh, eating the rich in, in a world where um, in order to sustain their lifestyle, we have to starve and die. Um, but I, I, I'm drawn to talk about a very interesting, I guess, consumptive politic that, that lays a little bit of the groundwork for what even brings um, blood feast to the table. Um, and, that's, and that's Egyptomania. Mm, yeah and so and, and, and it ties in uh in just a moment this theoretically ties together with a nice a nice bow of of eating human bodies right um so so as we were discussing um earlier in the show right like part of the difficulty of interpreting text is you can't just use one simplistic framework otherwise you'll get a simplistic conclusion that will mislead you uh, so we'd be remiss to not go through this without also discussing colonialism right mm-hmm. yeah um, in, in the turn of the century there is a um, colonialist uh, craze sweeping america and england um, it's commonly referred to now as egyptomania and what it was is that um, explorers were like quote-unquote discovering ancient egypt uh, which pretty much meant raiding all of these relics from the middle east uh, from egypt specifically and bringing them to england and to the united states Right. Um, this is kind of where our modern conception of museums starts to arise from these spoils of colonialism and war. But one of the things that goes on, right, you have mummy parties, right? In, mm-hmm. in uh, mummy parties, uh, rich people would literally unwrap mummies just to kind of see what's going on under the wrapping. But you also have people in England, especially, but also in the United States, literally consuming the bodies of mummies. Right, ground up mummies were were an aphrodisiac. They would restore male sexuality. They were good for disease. Like it was literally people consuming the bodies of the dead. And when we see blood feast, you know, like there's this temptation to to be like, oh, it's this uh, to to have to have like this racist appraisal of cannibalism. Like cannibalism is a thing done by like undiscovered tribes or ancient peoples that weren't <laughs> from Europe. However. Mm cannibalism is still alive and well right and you know like we're not so distant from it especially you know like when you look at like the theoretical framework of like you know uh, the fact that slaughterhouse workers are having their bodies torn to shreds on the job blurring the line between the animals they carve in themselves and the very literal cannibalism that happens during things like egyptomania right Mm. and it, it really in a way, Blood Feast is kind of directly challenging a lot of these colonialist ideas of empire there is a phrase that I never thought I would say. <laughs> uh, I I never thought you would say it either, but I do I do think you've got a point actually that this, whether this is, um, I think it's very telling that we've gone to Egypt, right? We've gone to, particularly because of this Egyptomania and the way that uh religion in horror and in you know uh all kinds of religion have often been treated with this um orientalist colonialist and imperialist gaze so i i completely agree so where should we go from there (laughs) (laughs) um We've talked about oh. cannibalism, gender, police violence. Uh, what what else? What isn't there in Blood Feast to discuss? Um, you know what I think we should talk about? 
I think we should talk about the ending. Ooh, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so our police, who have just basically spent the entire film going, hmm, sure seems like all of these people who had something in common had something in common. Guess I, <laughs> guess I'm gonna go get another donut. Um, managed to basically stumble across Fowler Ramsey's and what he's doing. There is a chase of sorts. Um. And yeah, how how would you describe the ending? Amazing is how I would describe the ending. <laughs> um, no, I, I think like the the ending the ending of this movie is really interesting because of how anticlimactic it is, right? You know, it it, it takes the de- detectives comically long to put together what's been going on, and and by the time they solve it, Suzette is is at, literally at the knife's edge. She is about to become the centerpiece of the feast, completing Fuad Ramsey's ritual. Uh, the police break in, and Fuad Ramsey's makes a run for it. Um, somehow, like either there's a dump immediately behind these rich people's homes, <laughs> or like Fuad Ramsey's can book it. But he gets to a dump, which is which is a, I think I think that we're gonna have so much discourse about this last scene. But he gets to a dump, and in order to hide from the police who are hot on his tail, he hides in the back of a dump truck. Mm-hmm. Um, dump trucks uh, have have a mechanism that crushes the garbage inside of them, so they can contain more on their trips. Uh, Fuad gets crushed by this device and dies. Uh, the cops show up and uh, they go, "Oh, gee whiz!" and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do you where do you want to pick up on this on this like last sequence of events? Uh, well, firstly, I want to return to what I started t- talking about, which is just how much the police suck. Um, which is that even here they don't do anything and they leave the kind of grisly cleanup to a working class person who's just trying to do their job. Like the police just make more work for people who are just trying to get through another long shift um blood feast is an abolitionist masterpiece changed my mind you can't <laughs> <laughs> no no I, I think i think you're you're absolutely right and there's i think there's a really powerful metaphor here here at the end of the film right um you you get you get like like one of the final lines uh said by one of the two detectives that have chased down fuad is um you know, like, oh, what a fitting end for a piece of trash like him. And it's just, it's hack. But I think what is incredibly telling is that, like, you know, going going back to this kind of, like, Carol Clover framework, right? Like, Fuad Ramsey's represented so many aspects of an American underclass who who have to live life in a, in a metaphoric trash. You know, like, like, like uh, this is Reaganite trickle-down economics that would be later developed and employed on onto the people of America. But, like... Mm. You know, like uh, the, the idea that the rich would let their scraps fall down upon us, and that is uh, what we would sustain ourselves on. Um, so, so there's kind of like that metaphoric layer, but then there's like an even more compelling layer, I think, in the fact that like Fuad is crushed to death; his body is mangled and destroyed in the back of a dump truck. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the two cops just kind of go like, "Oh well, book closed," and then they leave. And our final scene in the movie is one of the garbage men like closing the back of his dump truck yeah before we get a doubled exposure with um the statue from his altar crying blood but like 
So, so what are we left to in the end of the scene? We're left to the working class to, to clean up the ineptitude of the police, which is like literally our, our material condition. <laughs> yeah. I, I said before we started recording that the, uh, the last 20 minutes, which were cut, is just the guy having to drive his truck back to the, to the, to the impound for the night and then like break out a pressure washer. And like the, the mangled remains of Ramses just gets thrown onto a, a landfill. And it's like, uh, th- maybe Lewis decided that would just be a little bit too on the nose, too explicit. Wouldn't wouldn't leave the audience anything to do. Um, but but yeah, you're completely correct. That, that's exactly what this film, this last section of the film, is about, right? How does society function? The violence which is caused by the material conditions that we all inhabit, uh, exacerbated by those material conditions, is then crushed destroyed and the 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 working class who are so often the victims of it are left to be the ones who clean up yeah i I think that that hits the that hits the nail on the head for this ending (laughs) yeah i think you know i think we've pretty much it isn't a long movie let's be honest and i think we've gotten quite a lot out of this but is there anything more that you wanted to bring up Just running through all the the topics in my head. We talked about class. We talked about gender. We talked about police violence. We talked about colonialism. God, we talked about everything with this movie. This movie is is all <laughs> over the place, right? <laughs> uh, you let me go on a long digression about religion, existentialism, and Cornell West. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's super appropriate. I, I think like okay, here's here's one kind of point i would have and i think it speaks back to your point about like existentialism and what you were saying about cornell west um but 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 the true final scene is uh this dump truck uh being double exposed and then fading into it's a crossfade where we go from yeah. the closed door of the double, the dump truck that has a big number three on the back of it uh, to Fuad Ramsey's altar, and the statue on the altar has has bloody tears coming from its eyes, and I, I think like this is this is kind of speaking into like this the existential questions being posed by by this film. Right, three is a very common number in occult and magical systems, right? That's mm-hmm. being yep. uh, intentionally crossfaded into this statue that appears to be crying blood, right? Uh, we we've talked earlier about Fuad having some kind of like compelling or hypnotic power. And like the movie is giving us a lot of space to believe the kind of uh, reality of Fuad's magical system. Yeah, absolutely. See, this is something. Um, some backstory. Uh, one of the one of the most things I, I I I do quite a lot of research on is on is on the intersections of horror and religion. And one of the things that horror is really good at is creating what we could call like religious spaces without requiring religious belief right you don't need to believe that the 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 goddess ishtar could be resurrected by this this uh series of heinous murders but the film doesn't foreclose the possibility that it could work and i think that's something that a lot of horror does um and it's that refusal to kind of foreclose that 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 holding open of a sort of religious or non-material space which um is probably why lots of people who are interested in religion or the occult or magical systems 
are also interested in horror. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think like to to revisit our discussion on ability from earlier, like one of the worst traits of horror that horror still falls into is like, oh, why is this person a serial killer? Oh, they're mentally ill. You know, like that's why they're ultra violent. Like Michael Myers, he's violent because he's got mental illness. When in you know, in reality, you're more likely, you're literally more likely to, and this isn't this is not figurative, this is literal. You're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to be harmed by someone with a mental illness. That that is just a mathematical truth. You know, and so like that is one of horror one of the worst kind of uh, you know, forms of oppression that horror likes to play into. Um, and, and one that's never been very critical of, but I really appreciate that, like, you know, this, this movie is making it very clear that, like, Fuad Ramses is not mad, you know, he's not out of his mind. Fuad Ramses knows what he's doing and he knows that it's working, right? Whether, whether or not his particular religion is, is like, quote-unquote, correct, his magic is doing something. Yeah, and, uh, and this, this goes back to another kind of bigger point that we've made on the show many times which is that uh, any kind of radical, like this is something that Conor Habib would, would, would be all over, right? This idea that like uh, having, a, having a dry physicalist understanding of dialectical materialism or of radical political theory uh, would result in, you would look at someone like Ford Ramses and you would go, yeah, this person is just crazy. But if you have the ability to engage with religious, magical, occultic, theological ideas in some form, then you actually have to confront the fact that, you know, he isn't just insane. There's, there is not logic, but there's a logic at work here, which is a lot more challenging and I think kind of scarier. Oh, I completely agree. Like, I, th- I think like, like that's the scariest shot in this movie um, outside of outside of the the, the scene where um, the detective and Suzette are in the car together, like the scariest shot of the movie for me is that closing crossfade. It's the realization that like Fuad Ramses was going to awaken some kind of old god at the end of his magic, and not some kind <laughs> yeah. of like Lovecraftian beast. You know, like I feel that like Lovecraft is a little played out, right? Like awakening a squid monster is a little bit less intense than like awakening an ancient egyptian goddess you know like there's something about that that's kind of like it's calling into question everything we we conceive about the world right you know and like that has an underlying terror to it there's an underlying terror to the fact that like fuad ramses was about to complete this magic ritual (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and believed in what he was doing and believed that it kind of made sense in some way and you're not given the option of just dismissing it and going oh well this was just a crazy guy being a slasher killer well everyone uh thank you thank you for joining us today and i hope that you uh join us later um john and i will be hosting a feast at the hv crypt uh, uh, with food, food provided by Vincent Price and Ford Ramses. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so good. So John, who knows if the spell of this monstrous podcast has possessed anyone else? Lust, murder, food for an ancient goddess who received life through 
perverted Patreon subscriptions of others. Let's go home, John. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> great, great, superb. <laughs>